Welcome to Living Water Anglican Church in Albany, Western Australia. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Well, we are in our second week of our Lenten series, sermon series on love. And last week we looked at 1 John, the letter of John to the churches in the province of Asia and with a major theme of love. And we looked at 1 John chapter 4 where we saw that John says that God is love, literally is love. As a matter of fact, and how we, this is how we even know what love is, is because God is love. And that God has then commanded us to love one another, essentially to reproduce God's love through our lives. And this is the primary evidence that people will be able to tell and know that we belong to God. And in the midst of all this, it's, it's pretty obvious, not just from the text, the passage in 1 John, but, but from even the world around us, that love Love is this universal human quest. To love and be loved, it doesn't really get any higher than that. To love and to be loved. And so it's not surprising that many people have actually tried to define love or explain love. Matter of fact, it's estimated that since pop music began around the 40s and 50s or even into the 60s, 50% of all the pop songs ever written and that includes Taylor Swift and all the others, have been about love. That's just a staggering amount. And matter of fact, in any given year, romance novels are the most popular category of fiction. And one study found that romance books account for 25% of all books published and sold in the 21st century. 25%. From this, we see that authors and poets, philosophers and thinkers, they've all chimed in. And they've given their thoughts about love, trying to define it, trying to explain it. So I want to give you just a few examples this morning of some other people's opinions about what love is. These are, this obviously doesn't come from the Bible, but these are just some other people's thoughts about what love is. So we'll start off going back a little bit in history. Geoffrey Chaucer, who was the author of Canterbury Tales back in the 14th century, English author. He's the first one who said this, and Shakespeare actually picked it up from him, but it said... Love is blind. Now, that's actually worth a sermon in itself because maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's not a good thing, but uh, Chaucer's observation is that love is blind. Person, a gentleman by the name of Stendhal, who was a 19th century French writer, said, love is like a fever. It comes and it goes. Um, an, an English author by the name of Louis de Bernays said, love itself is what is left over after being in love has burned away. Actually, that's pretty insightful. And the civil rights leader, Martin Luther King Jr. from the U.S. in the 1960s, he said this about love. It's not so much a description, but he said, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. Very profound. And German psychologist Eric Fromm said, love is an act of faith. There's a lot of truth in that one as well. But Paul Valéry, a French poet, said, love is being stupid together. It's kind of like, well, yeah, I can, I can see that one. My favorite uh, comes from Charles Schultz. He's the creator of the Peanuts comic, comic strip, Snoopy and Charlie Brown. He said, love is sharing your popcorn. <laughs> I kind of like that one. And Ambrose Bierce, who is an American writer, said, love is temporary insanity, curable by marriage. And the, Ameri the American actress Joan Crawford said, love is fire, but whether it's going to warm your hearth 
or burn down your house, you can never really tell. <laughs> and one of my favorite comes from a 1970s rock group by the, by the name of Sweet, and they said, love is like oxygen. You get too much, you get too high. Not enough, and you're going to die. <laughs> all of these different, um, all of these are different, but they have one thing in common, and they do get one thing right, that love must be shared, it must be given. We learned last week that true love, agape love, or agape love, is other-oriented. It's about the other. It's not about the self. It is gift love, and it desires the best for the other person. But behind all this, this understanding of love is one key feature, which we're going to look at and explore a little bit today, and that is the idea that love is relational. Love is relational. And we're going to do that first by jumping into John chapter 17, verses 20 through 24. It's a short passage, which was read a little bit earlier. But the context of this is that Jesus is in the upper room with the disciples. And it's the night before the crucifixion. He has just shared the Last Supper with the, with the disciples, the, uh, the celebration of the Passover. And he's washed their feet. And we get this recorded in John's Gospel as well. And then he has this extended time of teaching to his disciples, just he, Jesus and the disciples, teaching about who he is, about his relationship with the Father, about the Holy Spirit, and what they can expect after he's gone. All these incredible things. For three chapters, he's taught about this. But then in chapter 17, he prays. And chapter 17 is comprised of three prayers. The first prayer, Jesus prays, is for himself. The second prayer is for his disciples. And the third prayer, which is this passage, it's a shorter prayer, is where Jesus prays for the future disciples. All those who, after he's gone, after the disciples have gone, all those who in the future will follow, will come to follow Jesus Christ, will be, will be his disciples, and that includes you and I. And so these words that Jesus prays about, uh, about um, the, his praying for the future church, the future disciples, those are the very last things Jesus prays before he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane and before he's arrested and then tried and crucified and killed. And from these verses, we just want to draw three, quickly, three key theological truths that are present here. And what we see is that in verses 20 through 22, Jesus prays for all believers, to, for all believers to come, as we mentioned, in the future. And what he prays for them is that they'll all have unity. They will all, they will all be one. And the reason he prays this is because unity amongst Christians is the single greatest testimony, the single greatest witness to God's reality, to, to, to God's existence. But it's not a unity of a common background. After all, the disciples came from a, a diverse background of, of various, um, various positions, various occupations. It wasn't, and, and even in the future it would be more so. It wasn't a unity based on common heritage, that they all shared the same um, lineage. It wasn't even a unity of social class. It was a unity of love. The unity which would bind the church together would be one of love because it was filled with male and female, Greek and Jew, upper class, lower class, all these were diverse, but the one thing they had in common which unified them was this unity of love. And the second key theological truth from these, this passage is in, we find this in verse 24 where Jesus says that the love from the Father for the Son existed before the creation of the world. Just this short little statement, but it is far from trivial. There are ma two major theological truths which come out of that. And the first one is simply, God has eternally existed as a trinity. God has existed eternally as a trinity. It's not something that came into existence at some point. And this, this trinity has existed, been in existence before creation. Forever, God has existed as a trinity. 
And secondly, following this is the central feature of this trinity is the love relationship between the Father and the Son. That's how God knows what love is. That's why John could say in 1 John last week that God is love because this love relationship that the Father has with the Son has existed from all eternity. Before creation, God, the Father was loving the Son. We only know what love is because God is love and God loves us but that's why and how that this love is possible because God the Father has loved the Son since, the be since before the creation of the world, before the beginning. God the Father has always loved the Son and the Son has always loved the Father. This loving relationship has existed from eternity. And because of this, this love between persons of the Godhead is one of these, if not the signature feature of God's nature and character, and literally it's what separates Christian understanding of God from all other understandings of God. Sometimes people say, well, all gods are the same. No, they're not, they're not, they're not, they're not. People who say that just do not know what they're talking about because the Trinitarian conception of God where the Father has loved the Son from before the beginning of the world that is totally unlike anything, any other conception of God. You can study all you want about Allah and Islam, it's not there. You can study all you want about Brahman in, in the Hindu religion. It's not there. Or about the nothingness and the void within Buddhism. Nothing like this is present in any of those. There, there, there is, none of these are Trinitarian in the same way at all. None of them are based on the love that the Trinitarian God has within the Godhead. It's just simply not there. It's totally unique. Totally unique. And the third theological truth from this passage that we see in verse 23 is that God loves those who choose Christ who will follow Christ, future Christians, even as he loves Jesus. Now this is a staggering connection because if God the Father loves God the Son has, and has loved him since before the creation of the world, that's just, just an incredibly powerful, long-lasting love, Jesus says that God loves all those who will come after me and my followers in the same way. It's an amazing reality. And I think one that is very well expressed by Rick Warren. Rick Warren was... Uh, and is the pastor and the founder of Saddleback Church in Southern California, and he wrote a book many of you may, may be familiar with, The Purpose Driven Life. And in that book, he addresses all sorts of questions, but one of the questions he addresses is the proverbial question, why am I here? Why are we here? But why am I here? It's one of those questions everybody seems to want to know the answer to. And Rick Warren says this. It's a, it's a rather insightful observation. He says, in answer to the question, why am I here? He said, God made you to love you. That's why you're here. That's why you and I are here. It's as simple as that. God made you in order to love you. The implications of that are profound. See, many people run around and they're, they're seeking the reason for their existence and looking, why am I here? I'm just trying to figure it out. And they seek the answers in different philosophies or different experiences, maybe in their material possessions and acquisitions. And when they don't, and they can't find it through all those, they, they, get, they turn to destructive behavior, or they get distraught. Sometimes they even check out completely, they get depressed and, dis and despair. I think a lot of people that, that struggle with depression, it's because they're wrestling with that question of why am I here, and they haven't found the answer. They, it's, they're just struggling because they don't know what it is. And until and unless you turn to God, though, as, as I would think the statement from Rick Warren attests, and until unless you turn to God for this reason for your existence, in Jesus Christ, you are never going to find it. You are never going to find the reason for your existence outside of Jesus Christ. Because the reason you exist is to be the recipient of God's love in Jesus Christ. 
So if you reject that love, if you don't follow Christ, you will never be satisfied. You will never be fulfilled. It's not possible. Now, you can try to fill that void. That void is there. You, you know it. You experience it. That, that, you, but you, you can try to fill that void or that desire with love for a multitude of other things, but it will never really work. And so the summary from all these three quick theological truths is that God loves us. God desires to be in a loving relationship with us, and God desires us then to be in relation, loving relationship with him and with others as well. So the conclusion we draw from this again is, going back to right at the beginning, that, God, that love is relational. Love is relational. Both God's love for us and our love for others are always in relationship. Matter of fact, this makes me think of the movie Castaway with Tom Cruise from a number of years, excuse not Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, getting my Toms mixed up. Tom Hanks a number, a number of years ago. Because if you remember in that movie, he's this corporate executive and his plane crashes and he gets stranded on this tropical island and he's there all alone, all by himself. And he's there for several years and what happens to him? He practically goes mad because he's in isolation. There's no relationship, there's no one to love and that lack of love, that lack of relationship practically dri drives him to the brink of insanity. It's a very accurate depiction. Matter of fact, along the same lines, if, you, if you're a, a, a legal offender, if you transgress the law here in most societies, or here or in other societies as well, and you get caught, and you, you, you're tried, and you're, and, and you're, you're sentenced, and you're, you're punished, and you're sent to prison, well, if your crime is particularly heinous, you get put in solitary confinement. Because solitary confinement is the worst possible punishment you can do these days because it's depriving you of any relationship. All human contact, it's the worst punishment you can possibly do. Outside of killing them with capital punishment, the worst thing you can do to somebody is put them in solitary confinement because you deprive them of relationship. You deprive them of any possibility of a loving relationship. This isolation, no relationship, no one to love, and no one to know, to know you or love you. Because we are designed for relationship. So God can love us, and so we can love God and love others. And along that line, in the early 20th century, a theologian by the name of Adolf von Harnack wrote something which nearly everyone since has agreed with. And what he wrote is that 1 Corinthians 13, by the Apostle Paul, is the best definition or explanation of love ever written. And I would completely agree with that statement. 1 Corinthians 13 is the best definition of love ever written. And in 1 Corinthians 13, as we saw, as we heard this morning when it was read, the context of that is it's, it's in this letter. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the Greek city of Corinth. It's a church which Paul founded. And chapter 13 is this quasi-poetic uh, statement with elaborate, elaborate literary structure, and we clearly don't have time to go into all that today. But it's sandwiched right between chapters 12 and 14. And if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, you know that chapters 12 and 14 are both about spiritual gifts. And at first glance, it seems kind of odd that Paul would put this incredibly poetic, profound statement about love right in the middle of these discussions. He's talking about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Then it's like he just digresses and goes to talk about love. And then he comes back to the topic of spiritual gifts in 14. But I would suggest that, that even though it's right in the middle, it's not accidental. It's actually very intentional 
Because what Paul is saying is that in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, he says that if I exercise my spiritual gift, in other words, if I'm serving others, but I'm doing it without love, my lack of love invalidates my spiritual gift and my service. doesn't mean anything if I don't do it with love. And he's saying that the motivation, why we do what we do, is the single most important feature of what we do. In other words, our service and our actions are only acceptable if the true motivation for, them, or for serving is love. This other love, this gift love that we've been talking about. And then Paul goes on in the verses to list 16 different qualities of love. 16 different qualities. Seven of, seven of them are positive. In other words, what it love is or what love does. And nine of them are phrased in a negative sense. What love is not. In other words, what, or what love does not do. So let me just give you a quick list of them. So I'm not taking them, and Paul kind of goes back and forth. He lists some positive, then some, some of the negative, or then positive and negative. I'm just going to give you all the positive first and then the negative. And, and, uh, but th- so these are the positive. He says that love is patient, it's kind, it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the negatives are, and actually you can turn these around to a positive as well, and I'm just going to do that briefly. The negatives are, he says, it does not envy. And if you don't envy, it's because you're content or you're peaceful. So love is peaceful. It does not boast. It is not proud. And both of those are connected with humility, so love is humble. It does not dishonor others. In other words, it praises them and builds them up. It's not self-seeking. In other words, it seeks the good of others. It is not easily angered, like Alex talked about this morning, but it's peaceful, it's secure. It keeps no record of wrongs. In other words, it's forgiving, it's merciful and gracious. It does not rejoice, excuse me, it does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth, and it never fails. In other words, it's consistent, it's committed, like we looked at last week, it perseveres. Now, one thing I find interesting about this entire list is that it tells us what love is or what love is not. It's not about what love can be or what love should be. So it's not a suggestion. It's not a possibility. It's not just something put out there hypothetically. It's definitive. This is what love is. And these 16 qualities describe God's love for us in the vertical and our love for others in the horizontal. We tend to think this is all about just how we love one another, but it's, it is about how we love one another, but first and foremost, it's because this is what describes God's love for us. God is patient with us. God is kind with us. Um, God, God, is, God, doesn't bo- in terms, God hopes and trusts and perseveres in his love for us. All these qualities describe God's love for us, and that's why they are also applicable to our relationship with one another. Because God loves us in these ways, we are compelled to love others in the same way. For example, in his love, God is patient with us. Thus, we, should, we are called to be patient with others as well, and that's the loving thing to do. Now, as you, as you, you listen to these lists, and as you saw it on the screen when it was read, this is, it's obviously, this is not Hollywood's version of love. Hollywood's version of love is often fickle. It's sometimes just pure emotion. It's irrational. It's often physical and very, very needy. That's what, how Hollywood portrays love, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Now, each of these 16 qualities of love 
is literally worth a sermon in itself, but that would take us probably till August to finish that. So I don't think we want to be here till August. So we've got about five or seven minutes to talk about all 16. So all we can do is make some generalizations about them together within this context. And so I want to put forth or make four observations about these 16 qualities of love that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. And the first one is what we've been saying all along this morning, is that love is relational. None of these qualities make any sense outside of relationship. Again, back to Tom Hanks in the movie Castaway. The idea of these qualities describing his rela- what he experienced on the island, that's nonsense. Because there's nobody there to love. It makes no sense outside of relationship. 17th century English poet John Donne wrote a poem called No Man is an Island. It's a phrase which has become very familiar to us. Because, and what he's saying in the poem is we're all connected. Because humans are relational. So that's the first, first observation, pretty simple, and again, we've been talking about it. But the second one, based on that, is relationships actually vary in degree of closeness. Now, Paul doesn't talk about that so much, but it, just, it kind of leads into something I'm going to say here in a moment. And so relationships are kind of on a continuum. So if I could just kind of portray that continuum. So on the one hand, it's, it's this, on the, the, we have general humanity in general the vast majority of which I or you will never meet. They're just out there. It's just, you know, the billions of people on the planet. That's, that's, uh, we have a relationship with them, but it's a, it's a very, it's not close at all. But then you move on from there to perfect strangers that you might meet on the street, but you don't know who they are. You've never seen them before, may never see them again. To casual acquaintances, to, to fr- a friends, then to close friends, then to family and then to spouse and children. So there's this continuum in terms of the relationship. They, relationships vary in their degree of closeness. And this, which leads to the third truth, which is the closer the relationship, the greater the expectation that 1 Corinthians 13 gift love and other love be present. So just to give you an example of that, one of the qualities of love which Paul talks about is that love always protects. Well, I don't, ha- I have some, but I don't have a- much responsibility to protect perfect strangers. Now, unless I'm walking down the streets and I see some imminent danger, a brick falling off a building and try to put, I may have some responsibility to protect them, but that's about as far as it goes. I don't know what's threatening them. I don't know what's going on in their life. So my responsibility to protect them just isn't all that great. I just don't know because I'm not that close to them. But I have a major, a huge responsibility to protect my wife to protect my children, protect my grandchildren from all sorts of things, which is why there you put computer boundaries, which is why you put when children, which is why you put boundaries around them in terms of, um, um, you know, uh, times that they have to be home. They have curfews. They have boundaries on how much television they can watch and how much electronics they can use and all these, and they have to eat certain foods because you, you put boundaries around them and, and help them because you're trying to protect them. You're trying to protect, now, you, now there's a fine line of balance there because if you protect them too much, they're going to rebel against that. So it's a protection level which, which is very wise. You don't want to, as Paul talks about, you want to exasperate your children as well, children. But you, the, you, you protect them because you have this responsibility to do so because the relationship is a close one. And all of that leads us to the fourth observation here is that sadly the people closest to us with the highest expectation for 1 Corinthians other love Because that expectation is so high and because they're so close, these are the people that can hurt us the most. These are the people that can hurt us and wound us because when they fail to love us with 1 Corinthians 13, other love, with this gift love, it hurts. And it often hurts very, very deeply. 
Now, it could be what they do to us. Often, I would suggest that it's what they don't do for us. In other words, they don't protect us when they should. They don't believe in us. They aren't kind to us. They aren't patient with us. They get angry with us all the time. They don't honor us. It's a failure to love by neglect. But we also don't want to overlook that there's failure to love by mistreatment. It can be verbal mistreatment or physical, even sexual mistreatment or sexual abuse from someone we trust, someone who's supposed to love us, and they're mistreating us in these ways. It's very confusing and very difficult. Someone who we thought was committed to us isn't displaying that at all. And what's most confusing still is when if they tell us they love us, then they either neglect us or mistreat us. It's very confusing, especially for children. The love that they proclaim doesn't match their actions, how they really act in relationship. It's very tragic. It's one of the most destructive things in our society today, and it's because it's, it's, it's um, for lack of a better term, it's a bastardization of 1 Corinthians 13. It's doing all the things that Paul says uh, that, that love is not. In other words, it's not doing the things that Paul describes. And if you resonate with this this morning, if you've been hurt by someone who loved you or claimed to love you, someone you trusted, I want to encourage you to do two things this morning. First one, and hopefully you're doing these already, is to talk to someone you trust about that hurt. Because talking with someone you trust is as, is, and who is a good listener helps the healing process. But the second one this morning is to talk to God about that hurt. Because the true healer is God. God can and will love you with 1 Corinthians 13 love with this gift love, because it is God's nature to love you in this way. That's who God is. And so let God love you. Let God's love envelop you. Let his love surround you and fill you. Give your hurt and your pain and your anger and your fear, give it to God. Let him heal your heart. Let him wash away the hurt and the anger at the foot of the cross. Let God love you the way you were meant to be loved, because again, God made you to love you. So open, your, open yourself up to God and let him love you. Now, as we close this morning, I want to give you a challenge. I'm kind of a teacher by personality type. That's just who I am. So you have a little bit of homework this morning. So take it as that, if you will. I want you to, it's, 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 a, it's a good task, a good, a good uh, Expectation. I want you to identify one person with whom you are in relationship. Could be at varying levels of closeness, but one person with whom you are in our relationship could be a spouse, could be a ch- uh, one of your children, could be siblings, could be parents, could be friends, could be coworkers, could be neighbors, at whatever level of relationship, but identify one person and then love them. Love them. Love them with 1 Corinthians 13 gift love. Be patient with them. Be kind with them. Be humble. Be peaceful. Be merciful. Be gracious. Be consistent. Be committed. Protect them. Trust them. Build them up. Believe for the best in them. Always seek their good. And the key to loving this way is to allow God to love you with this 1 Corinthians 13 gift love. Because then and only then will you be able to pass that gift love on to others that you're in a relationship with. And so would you join with me in praying to that end now. So dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us with true love 
with 1 Corinthians 13, gift love. Thank you for being patient with us. Thank you for being kind to us and merciful and gracious towards us and deeply committed to us. And thank you for giving us the ultimate expression of this gift love in your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Help us to love those around us with this same gift love of patience, mercy, and grace. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to love others in this way. And for those of us who have been hurt by those close to them, who have failed to love them, we pray your healing love would surround them, protect them, and restore them. Help us all to live in the reality that you made us to love us. May we embrace that love so we can be made whole and so we can then pass it on to others. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.